0: Well, good morning everyone. Welcome to our church campout uh, service this morning. It's great to see you guys all here this morning and just a special welcome if you're visiting with us. It's great to have you. We're so glad to, that you could join us today and we invite you to join us for the barbecue that we're going to have after and you can just feel free to to come and eat eat some lunch with us after. Uh I called this message Can you see Can you see? You know, there was a time, and and most of you, even those of Grace Bible Fellowship, wouldn't know this, but there was a time when I couldn't see. Uh, I was almost, I I think, almost legally blind. I wasn't allowed to drive without my glasses on. And it just kind of happened gradually over time. So I didn't even know that I was blind. I remember in high school, I would think, oh, I wish the teacher would clean the board a little better, then I'd be able to see what's going on on the chalkboard. And that kind of happened over like a, about a year or two. And then one day the teacher cleaned the board and I couldn't see. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, there's something more going on here than a dirty chalkboard. I I was blind, but I, I didn't even really know that I couldn't see. In fact, now that I think about it, I couldn't see friends down the hallway. I could kind of tell by the way that they walked who they were, but I couldn't see the details of, of people's faces. And and I just, I thought that was how everybody saw, right? It was just kind of how I th- assumed that what I was seeing was what everyone in the world was seeing. And there's a, a parallel to this kind of blindness in the spiritual world. We are born, according to scripture, we're born into this world spiritually blind, We can't see things properly. We can't see spiritual things properly. And the the problem is we don't even recognize it. We don't even know that that's the case. Or perhaps we refuse to recognize it. We see everything different than how it really truly is, but we have no sense that the problem is our own. In fact, we have no sense that we even have a problem. And in our text today, we're going to look at a man who cannot see. Now there's nothing wrong with this man's physical sight, at least as far as the Scripture tells us, he can see physically just fine. But he has a spiritual problem, and that is that he is spiritually blind. And his spiritual blindness distorts his vision to such an extent that he doesn't recognize who Jesus is, he doesn't see who he is, and he doesn't see who other people are. And so his judgment is incorrect. It's skewed. It's distorted. He doesn't see Jesus rightly. He doesn't see other people rightly. And he doesn't see himself rightly. Now, if you've got your Bibles here today, we're in Luke chapter 7. So you could turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And we'll read the text here in a moment. But as we read, uh, and as you follow along as I read, I want you to notice the Pharisee. His name is Simon. I want you to notice his blindness and see how Jesus works to bring him to a place of seeing. This text is really designed to make us think about ourselves and we're meant to compare ourselves by the people in the story and ask ourselves, can I see? Can you see? Well, let's see. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and, he, and that, that him is Jesus there. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Now, the thing about spiritual blindness is that it's hard to see. And when someone has it, they often can't even tell that they have it. And so again, we want to ask ourselves this morning, how can I tell if my spiritual vision is judging things correctly? Or what are the marks of 2020 spiritual vision? We need to make sure we are seeing ourselves, and we are seeing, most importantly, that we are seeing Jesus correctly. You see, Simon, again, couldn't really see the woman. And he couldn't really see his own self and his spiritual state. And he couldn't see Jesus for who he really was. The woman, on the other hand, saw Jesus by faith and she was forgiven. She was saved. She was changed. And the question of verse 49 is really meant to bring us to a decision. Who is this who even forgives sins. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Can you see Him for who He truly is? Can you see Jesus correctly? And now as we look at this text, we're going to go through it through the four scenes. And again, are you seeing correctly? And the the first scene that we're going to look at is in verse 36 to 39, and we're going to call it the dinner. So we see first of all here the dinner. And in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And so one of the Pharisees wanted to have dinner with Jesus. And we learn from verse 40 that his name is Simon. And Simon was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he would have been a fastidious lawkeeper. He would have carefully obeyed the outward form of the law. He would have had a sense of religious purity that, at least for most of us, would be very difficult to relate to. The Pharisees saw themselves as righteous people. They were holy people, and and they kept away from sinners. They kept away from the outskirt, the, the 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 sinful society, and 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 they would they they thought that any kind of sinner coming into their presence would contaminate their purity. And so the Pharisees have have been introduced already in the book of Luke if we had been going verse by verse through Luke and and up to this point already in Luke every time we meet a Pharisee they're always hostile towards Jesus every single Pharisee is hostile for example in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus tells a paralytic friend your sins are forgiven you in Luke 5:21 the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus went on then to, to heal the, the man and, and to show that he had authority on earth to forgive sins. That's from 524. A little later on in Luke chapter five, when Jesus called Matthew to follow him, look at 530 if you're there in your Bible. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees couldn't understand why Jesus would be near these sinful people. Look at Luke chapter six and verse two. Some of the Pharisees said, "Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath?" And then in six verse seven, the scribes and the and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. The Pharisees were hostile towards Jesus and their top complaint was that Jesus associated with sinners. They rejected Jesus and they rejected the one who God sent to prepare the way for Jesus, that is, John the Baptist. Remember, John had come preaching a baptism of repentance and he called the nation to repent, to turn from their sins and to believe on the coming Christ. But the Pharisees, they didn't see themselves as sinners. They, they thought they were righteous. They thought they had no need of repentance. And according to Luke 17 and verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. And so they weren't baptized by John's baptism. They rejected John and they rejected Jesus. Jesus said about them in Luke 7, 34, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Again, for the Pharisees, the highest insult that they could think of was to call Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And now, in our text, we're introduced to a Pharisee who is requesting to have dinner with Jesus. Now, why exactly this man wanted to eat with Jesus, we're not told. It could be that he wanted to humiliate Jesus. And we'll see later that the, the treatment that he gave Jesus at dinner was, was uh, really not a very good treatment. He neglected many of the common courtesies of a good host as Jesus comes to his house to eat dinner with him. Now, could it be that he wanted to humiliate Jesus? Could be that he wanted to examine who Jesus was for himself? Look at, look at chapter seven, right after Jesus raised a young man from the dead. Look at Luke seven, fourteen. Then he came up and he touched, touched the buyer and the, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Verse 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And so the people were saying a great prophet has arisen. Now look at what Simon says in his heart in verse 39. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she was a sinner. And so the crowd's going, hey, a great prophet has arisen among us and Simon seems to be examining Jesus to see if he really was a prophet. And when he says in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, the construction in the Greek there shows that he doesn't actually believe at this point that Jesus is a prophet. And the sense then is, if this man were a prophet and he isn't. So now back to verse 36, We've kind of introduced the Pharisees here. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and, and he, that is Jesus, went into the Pharisees' house and reclined at table. Now, in order to really understand what's going on here, we need to learn a little bit about homes and dinners in the ancient Near East and Israel. Jesus, it says, entered the home, and most homes, or at least large homes like this, were made out of stone. And they weren't big open concept places like we're used to, like this building, for example. They were typically little series of stone rooms attached one to another in a in a C shape. And then the, the rooms would kind of form an open courtyard area. And the people would cook and eat in the courtyard area very much like, like we're doing out here in our campsite area. And a dinner like this was a public affair. This was the, the, the public and uninvited guests would come to the dinner and just, this was a nightly thing. They would come to dinners and they would listen to the conversations of these holy people, and, and they would watch what kind of food they were cooking, and they would kind of listen into the conversations, and that was kind of their entertainment for the day, to go to one of these big Pharisees' houses and see what they were having for dinner and listening to the conversations, and to do so what wasn't considered rude in the least. Now, the tables that they ate at were low tables, and they had little couches that you would kind of lean on with your left hand and then you you would be kind of lying on the floor and with your right hand you would you would grab some bread and dip it and eat at the table like that. And so you're kind of lying there like this. Your feet are away from the table, your head is close to the table. And uh, maybe they were perpendicular to the table or maybe everyone was kind of on an angle like like parallel like angle parking in a parking lot. And the servants they they kind of they served the meal from around the outside and then behind the servants would be all the people in the community that wanted to kind of get in and get a good place and see what was happening at dinner. Now, to host a meal like this was a, a bit of a status thing. You know, everyone could see how you hosted. Everyone could see what kind of food you were serving and your, your delicious food and how you treated your guests, and, and everything was really on display. And a good host would, would first greet his guest with a holy kiss usually on the cheeks, and they would have a servant. They would wash your feet, or at least they would provide some water there so that when you arrived at the house, you could wash your own feet. Now, feet in the ancient Near East were a huge problem because it was hot and dusty and dirty, and you were wearing leather sandals. And uh, if you've ever gone for a hike, or you've ever spent a whole day in some nice leather sandals, you probably recognize at the end of the day when you took those things off that that was not a good thing, and you got to wash those feet, right? Those feet are dirty, those feet are stinky, and so you got to wash your feet before dinner. Now, often at a dinner like this, the host would also anoint your head with a little bit of olive oil, which was kind of a, a nice refreshing thing, which is just totally weird to me, But for them, that was a, one of the courtesies. A little bit of olive oil on the head. Oh, that's nice. Now you're ready to have some dinner. So notice that none of these courtesies were done for Jesus. At least, none of them were done by the host. Now, how much to make of this lack of hospitality is, is hard to decide. One commentator said that this was a declaration of war. That that by not doing this, it was just a total affront and a declaration of war. Another said this was a calculated snub. Uh, another said that a, a, another rabbi might have stomped out after such a shoddy welcome. But others who have kind of looked at this say, well, maybe there's. It's not quite so offensive. Um, Maybe, maybe this isn't, isn't totally out of place. And so it's a little bit difficult to know exactly how much we should make of all this. Now, the fact that Jesus later points out publicly that, that Simon hasn't treated him according to these courtesies shows at, at least that he wasn't treated according to the cultural norms of the day. Now, typically, when you had a traveling rabbi over to your place for dinner, You are going to treat and honor these guests, especially at a public dinner like this again. Now, verse 37 introduces us to another character. It says there in the ESV, "...behold a woman of the city who was a sinner. And behold is a good translation. Some of them have left out the behold, but it's really behold. And there's a sense of shock here as this new person enters into the scene. Behold, a woman who was a sinner shows up at this dinner. And she's a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, the the best translation might actually be more like this. Behold, a woman who was a sinner in the city. A woman who was a sinner. This woman was known in the city for her particular sin. Now her sin isn't disclosed, but it'd be pretty obvious to guess that that she was most likely a, a prostitute. Now the woman came knowing that that Jesus was there, and she brought an alabaster flask or a a, a vial, a a flask of ointment or perfume. And and alabaster was an Egyptian marble, and it was used to hold perfume. It was a a perfume container. And most likely, this perfume was very expensive. And it, it seems that this woman would have met Jesus before or at least heard Him preach at some previous time. And she brought this perfume it seems, with the intent of anointing Jesus. But when she arrived with her perfume, she was overcome with emotion and she began weeping. Verse 37 again, "...and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now unlike Simon, this woman sees Jesus for who he truly is. Simon thinks Jesus is a false prophet, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This woman sees much more. She's overcome with emotion and she's weeping. And she's weeping enough to wet Jesus' feet with her tears. That's a, that's a lot of tears. And then she not only wet His feet, but she kept on wiping it. There's there's ongoing action in the original in all of these verbs. She, she keeps wiping. She keeps weeping. She keeps wiping the, the feet with her hair. Now it seems like she didn't bring a towel, and so she let out her hair to dry Jesus' feet. Now, women in that day would not let down their hair. And again, this shows that, that this woman was overcome. And she's kissing Jesus' feet, ongoing kissing of His feet and anointing them with the perfume. She's continually doing this. She had, Like Jesus says, she, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I arrived. Now, this is an act of devotion to Jesus Christ. And Jesus interprets this as love in verse 47, it says, She loved much. But Simon sees the scene very differently. Verse 39 Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, Simon, again, doesn't think Jesus is a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him. Again, the Pharisees had an acute sense of ritual purity, and for a, a sinner to touch them would have made them unclean in their mind. And so, if Jesus were a p- true prophet, Simon thought, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. He wouldn't have allowed a sinner like this woman to touch him. Now, Simon has judged the woman and he has judged Jesus. Jesus. Notice in verse 39, he, he said this to himself. He didn't speak this out loud. But Jesus is a prophet, and yes, he's much more than a prophet, and he sees right into Simon's heart. And he knows exactly who and what sort of a woman is touching him, and he knows what kind of a man is hosting him. And so he tells a parable then to show Simon that he is seeing everything wrong. And we're going to call this number two now. We move into the parable and we're going to just call it the debtors. This is the parable of the two debtors. The verses 40 to 43. And so number two, the debtors. And it's amazing here as we come into this, just to recognize in verse 40 that Jesus answers Simon's thoughts. Again, Simon didn't say anything out loud. Jesus, verse 40, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. I have something to say to you is maybe a, a nice way to initiate a conversation that you know that the other person doesn't want to have. And so, Simon, I have something to say to you. And uh, go ahead, teacher, you, you say that thing. Now, Simon shows a little bit of respect. He calls Jesus teacher. And Jesus now answers with a parable. This might be the easiest of all the parables in Scripture to interpret. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, 500 denarii was about a year and a half's wages. And 50 denarii was about two months' wages. Now, neither of these two people were able to repay the debt. The debt was too much for them. And so the moneylender graciously forgave both debtors. That's how the NASB translates it. The, the, the moneylender graciously forgave the debtors. The ESV says he canceled the debt. Now, the word there comes from the word grace. And the word became one of the Apostle Paul's favorite words for forgiveness. Colossians 2 and verse 13, for example, uses this word. Paul says there of the Colossians, And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And there's that word, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Colossians 3.13 has that word again. Paul says there, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And so this moneylender freely forgave or he canceled the debt of both of these people. And forgiveness is the canceling of, of the debt of our sin against God. Forgiveness is an act of grace. It's an extension of grace. One lexicon said of this word that it means to show oneself gracious by forgiving wrongdoing. Now by asking the question at the end of verse 42, look at it there. Jesus asked Simon, which of them will love him more? Jesus makes Simon acknowledge that more forgiveness will mean more love. Now Simon makes this lame reply in verse 43. He adds, I suppose... The one who f- forgave more, I, I suppose. Uh, uh, he adds that maybe because he doesn't want to admit anything that could be used against him. Maybe he senses Jesus is about to trap me in in my words here, and uh, and so he senses a trap coming on, and he so he adds, I suppose, or or maybe he's not sure how every debtor would respond in a similar situation. But he answers, and Jesus says in verse forty three to him, "You have judged rightly." You have judged rightly. Now, what an amazing response by the Lord. You have judged correctly. And I think this points to the fact that Simon had just judged incorrectly just moments before. So let's think about this parable and what it shows. The debtors were unable to pay their debts. They have both been graciously forgiven. And the greater their forgiveness was, the greater their love would be towards the One who forgave them. And by the time we get to verse 47, the meaning of the parable is going to be clear. Jesus says there, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And so as we interpret this parable, we see that debts is equal to sins. And that forgiveness of debts is the same as forgiveness of sins. It's pointing to the forgiveness of sins. And many sins forgiven results in much love towards Jesus and so think about this then by this parable Jesus shows that he does know that this woman is a sinner he does know that this woman who is touching him is a sinner and by this parable Jesus shows that he knows what Simon thinks in the secret recesses of his heart And by this parable, Jesus shows that He, that is, Jesus Christ, forgives sins and that therefore, love will be shown to Him for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, how somebody responds to Jesus shows their standing before God. Simon judged the parable correctly, but that's about all he did. Now Jesus is going to show him, or at least try to show him, the correct judgment of the woman of Simon himself and of Jesus. And we're going to call this the delineation. The delineation. Delineation is the action of describing or portraying something accurately or precisely. And so Jesus is going to kind of give a, a delineation. He's going to describe or portray precisely what's going on in this whole situation. And in verse 44, He asks Simon, do you see this woman? Now what a... Question, what a piercing question this is. Do you see this woman? Now, Simon obviously sees her with his physical eyes, but Jesus is pointing out you're not seeing her correctly. And by showing Simon the woman, Jesus is going to help Simon see who he, who Jesus is. Earlier in verse 39, Simon thought if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who is touching him for she she is a sinner, and in the in the Greek the word man if this man were a prophet he would have known the the word man is not there and so in 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 the, in his own thoughts Simon calls Jesus this if this it's kind of a a, a way of saying it in in disgust. But now through the woman, Jesus is going to show or try to improve Simon's view of who Jesus is. And so in verse 44, it says, Then turning to the woman, he says to Simon, So he, he turns to the woman and he says, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. Now by, by turning at the woman, it, it makes what follows more gentle from Jesus. See, Jesus is focusing on the woman, not on Simon. It's not as He as he goes, I entered your house and He's pointing at Simon. He's He's really more focused on the woman and what she has done. But then turning toward the woman, He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave Me no water for My feet. But she has wet My feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave Me no kiss." But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now Jesus is, by doing this, breaking the cultural conventions of the day. Uh, A guest was expected to be thankful no matter what the host did for him. No matter matter how small of an offering was given, uh, a guest was was meant to thank profusely thank the host but by pointing out simon's lack of hospitality and comparing it with what the woman did jesus is helping simon to reconsider who he is who jesus is jesus is actually really amazingly and incredibly humble in this moment because he is god in human flesh And he allows himself to be mistreated and ignored and slighted. Jesus deserves worship, but he receives really the lowest treatment. And he doesn't demand worship, but he does receive it when it is given. At least in this context, he's not demanding worship. He doesn't even demand here what would be a common courtesy for a traveling teacher. He doesn't say, for example, you didn't wash my feet. He only points out that Simon provided no water for him to wash his own feet. Surely if, if God came to your house for dinner, you would want to wash his feet. At least if you were in the ancient Near East, you would want to wash his feet. Jesus says, you gave me no kiss. But he doesn't say where he should have been kissed. Equals kissed one another on their cheeks, but superiors were typically kissed on the hands. Nobody in that day kissed the feet. Simon did not anoint Jesus' head with oil, whereas the woman anointed his feet with perfume. Now, oil there was just common olive oil, relatively cheap. Perfume, on the other hand, was costly. And Simon's neglect shows that he did not think highly of Jesus. The woman, on the other hand, has made up for Simon's lack with an extravagant expression of love. What she has come to see is that Jesus has forgiven her many sins. That He has washed away her sins. That He has removed her guilt. He sees, She sees Jesus as the one who has saved her soul. She sees Him as her Savior. She sees Him as her Lord. He is her God. She sees Jesus as worthy of her love, and she pours out her love on Jesus in this extravagant expression. And she doesn't care what anybody thinks. She's determined to show love towards her Savior. Jesus concludes His delineation by tying what happened at dinner to the parable of the debtors. Verse 47, "...therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little." Now there's so much to look at in this one little verse. Jesus again shows that He knew who and what sort of woman she was. He knew that she was a sinner. He knew that her sins were many. He says her sins, which are many, He knew this woman. And He also knew that those many sins that she had were forgiven. The New American Standard translates that as have been forgiven. Your sins, which are many, have been forgiven. The ESV says your sins are forgiven. And the reason for the difference there is that the the Greek text there actually shows that the sins were forgiven in the past with continuing results. And so the NASB is trying to bring out the past tense that these sins have been forgiven in the past. Whereas the ESV is trying to present the present reality that your sins are at this moment forgiven. But the the Greek shows that this is something that happened in the past and the results Continue right up to the present. Your sins have been forgiven and you continue to remain in that blessed state of having your sins forgiven. The word for forgiven in verse 47 is a a different word for forgiveness than verse 42. This is a more common word for forgiveness and it means to dismiss someone or to dismiss something, to send it away. And when it's used with sins, it means to release someone from the legal or moral consequences of their sins. And so this woman is now released from the consequences, from the penalty of her sins. Her sins have been pardoned and they are pardoned. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven and they are forgiven. And the penalty for those sins have been removed and it is removed. The penalty of hell and separation from God no longer applies to this woman. What a glorious reality it is to have your sins forgiven to be to be cleansed of your sins and to know that you are cleansed of your sins now we need to be careful about verse 47 as we interpret it because if we aren't careful we could really get this exactly backwards why has she been forgiven was it because of her love for god and and the, the what we need to do there is look really closely at this therefore in verse 47 the word therefore or, in some translations, for this reason is connected to I tell you. When Jesus says I tell you, it's therefore I tell you. It, it's not, therefore is not connected with her sins have been forgiven. Jesus, if you can follow me here, Jesus is not saying therefore her sins are forgiven for she loved much. She is not forgiven because she shows love. It's not as if she's forgiven because she shows love. What what Jesus is saying here to Simon is, Therefore, because she loved much, therefore I tell you that her sins are forgiven. And so the evidence of her forgiveness, the evidence of the fact that she has been forgiven, is that she now has this love. She was forgiven before, and now she has this love. Because of what she did for Jesus, Jesus can tell Simon that her sins are forgiven. One one lexicon describes this construction this way. It says, infer from this the fact that. In in other words, we can infer that her sins have been forgiven from the fact that she loves Jesus. The parable teaches then that our sins are an unpayable debt and that we could never pay the penalty for our sins. Even an eternal, uh, an eternity in hell could never exhaust the debt of our sins. The parable teaches that God's gracious forgiveness results in love. And when we see our infinite debt of sin removed by God's grace, it should make us love God. And it should make us love Jesus Christ. Listen to this one. The parable teaches that having our sins forgiven should make us love Jesus. The woman's love for Jesus shows that she has been forgiven. And Jesus is saying then that the proper response to God's forgiveness is for us to love Jesus Christ. Love for Jesus shows one standing before God. It shows either that you are forgiven, or if you do not love Jesus, it shows that you are lost, that you are not forgiven. Look at verse forty-seven, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, what is this all about? He who is forgiven little loves little. Is is there such a thing as being forgiven little? I, I don't think that there is. All sin we know from Scripture cost Jesus the penalty of death on the cross, or cost the sinner an eternity in hell. And I think Simon is showing or, or Jesus is showing Simon his his little love. You know, Simon thinks that he has little need of forgiveness. In Simon's mind, if, if he sinned, it would surely only be a little one. But there really is no such thing as little forgiveness or little sins. But there are many people who think that they have little sin or that think they need little forgiveness. Jesus doesn't say here that Simon is forgiven. And I think I'd be stretching the parable too far to say that Simon is the little debtor. Simon shows really no love towards Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't say Simon showed little love. And no love for Christ equals no forgiveness. Jesus here is trying to bring Simon to a realization. This woman who you look down upon as a sinner is actually a forgiven sinner who loves me. Her forgiveness was great and it resulted in a great love but you, you think you have little need of forgiveness and you have shown little love, if any. Remember what the great commandment is? Deuteronomy 6.5 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the, the great commandment. This is what we are called to do. If we would earn salvation by our works, we must love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength for all of our lives. This is an impossibility for sinners. And if you or Simon have broken the greatest commandment, that must be a great sin. And so Simon was guilty of great sin. Simon was in danger of eternity in hell. And you and I, we are guilty of sin. And so we see here that how Simon turned the mirror on, or how Jesus turned the mirror on Simon to try to show him his sin. What about you? Can you see your state before God? We've seen the dinner then, the debtors. The delineation. Now in verses 48 to 50, we see the declarations. And there's three declarations here. Jesus makes two declarations to the woman. In verse 48, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And in verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And in verse 49, the crowd makes a declaration among themselves. Look at verse 49. Then those who were at the table, With him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus tells the woman, Your sins have been forgiven, or Your sins are forgiven. Again, the same tense as we saw earlier. Your sins have been forgiven in the past and are forgiven right now. Now, again, this is not a pronouncement of forgiveness, as though this woman in this moment was forgiven. This is a pronouncement of something that has already happened in the past and the results of that thing happen even up to the present moment. This woman has been forgiven before and she continues to remain forgiven. This is a a, a pronouncement by Jesus of assurance of her salvation. Jesus is telling her what has already happened to her. Now, imagine if Jesus Christ could come to each one of us and say individually, "'Your sins have been and are forgiven.'" What an amazing thing that would be. Imagine if Jesus could come and say, "'Your sins have been and are forgiven.'" But still, we can know just as surely as her because Jesus has spoken to us through His Word. And so we can know as surely as this woman that if we see love for Christ in our hearts, we can know that our sins are forgiven. In fact, why don't you just just to see this yourself, turn to first Peter chapter one and verse eight with me? We're going to look at just two verses in First Peter here. First Peter one and verse eight says, though you have not seen him, and the hymn there is Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And the reason we rejoice and believe is earlier in verse 3. Look at First 1 Peter 1, 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so there's this, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, and, and that hope and that faith that we have from the new birth causes us to love Jesus Christ and to rejoice in Him. And so we can know that if there's a genuine love for Christ in us, this is not a natural thing to us. This is a, a supernatural thing. Our our natural state is resistance and hostility towards God. Our, our natural state is blindness to the glory of Christ. And so if we see Christ and we see his greatness and we see love for Christ in our hearts, it's a sure sign that our sins have been forgiven and that we have been born again. And so the people reclining at the table on that day realize the implications of all that has happened. They understand that Jesus was claiming to forgive sins and that love for him was the evidence of having been forgiven. And they say, who is this? Not who is this man, but simply who is this? Who, who is this? And again, that might remind us of Simon's, if this were a prophet. Who is this? Who is Jesus Christ? He's a prophet, but he's so much more than a prophet. No prophet ever forgave people their sins. No prophet ever forgave people their sins and demanded love for that. Jesus forgives sins on his own authority here. Certainly no prophet ever claimed that love for him is the evidence of a right relationship with God. The question, who is this? Who, who even forgives sins is meant to linger with us and we're, we're meant to answer it for ourselves. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Who do you say that He is? Is He the One who forgave your sins? Is He the One who made you right with God? Is He the object of your faith? Is He the love of your life? In Luke chapter 7, the the whole chapter has been about this question, who is Jesus Christ? Everything in chapter 7 reveals that Jesus is the promised Messiah. In Luke 7 verses 1 to 10, Jesus healed a centurion servant simply by giving the command. He didn't even visit visit the servant. He just gave a command and this centurion servant was healed. In Luke 7:11 7, to 17, Jesus raised a dead man to life in front of a sizable crowd. In verse 19, John's disciples ask, "Are you the expected one?" And look at what Jesus answers there in verse 21. He says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so who is Jesus Christ? He's the promised Messiah. He raises the sick, he, ra- uh, he heals the sick, he raises the dead, he forgives sins. According to Luke 1 and verse 32, he is the son of the Most High. Luke 1 and 35 and 322 say that he is the son of God. He is Lord in Luke 1.43, 211 and 34, he is Christ the Messiah in Luke 211. He is the savior again in Luke 211. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the object of saving faith. He's the one we trust in to make us right with God. What do you see when you look at Jesus Christ? Simon saw nothing special. No one special. Simon saw a traveling rabbi hardly worth any hospitality. Simon saw a man unworthy, a false prophet, not worthy of much. He was he was blinded to who Christ was. The woman here, on the other hand, saw infinitely more. She loved this Jesus as her Savior. She loved Him with all her heart. It broke her heart to see Him treated in the way that He was. Do you love this glorious Jesus Christ? Can you see who He is? He is worthy of our praise and our lives and our all. Now, if you do see who He is, the question might be for you then this morning, well, how do I show my love to Jesus Christ? I recognize that He is my Savior. I recognize that He is glorious, that He is worthy, that He is wonderful. How do I show love to Jesus Christ? Well, there's really two ways that He has given us, and, and one is by loving one another. Because we are, as a church, As the church, we are the body of Christ. And so when we love one another, we love Jesus Christ. And when we seek to live to fulfill the mission that He has given us to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that He commanded, when when we do that, and we are about His mission and focused on preaching this gospel to the nations, then we are... Showing our love for Jesus Christ by joining Him in the work that He has given us to do. But if you're here this morning and you haven't been forgiven of your sins and you haven't seen the glory of Christ such that you turned to Him and trusted Him for your salvation, I would urge you to be reconciled with God today. To turn from your sin to recognize the, the spiritual danger that you are in because of your sin and to trust in this Jesus Christ who alone can forgive your sin and can reconcile you to God. And if you have any questions about that or you want to talk about that, you can talk to me or you can talk to really any one of us and we would be so glad to point you to this Savior and to explain more about His glorious forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, we come... And we thank You for this wonderful scene that we've been able to look at. We thank You for providing us this scene in Holy Scripture that we might see who Jesus Christ truly is through Simon and through the woman. We pray, Lord, that the reality of the forgiveness of our sins would delight us and cause us to love Christ in even greater ways today. And we pray for those who are lost that You would bring them to this true salvation, that, that You would grant them this faith that saves and brings us peace with God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.